This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we all knew something was coming at Deutsche Bank. There couldn't not be something, Carol, given all the pressure that Christian Saving, the CEO of Deutsche Bank, has been under. They unveiled that plan, and investors, at least so far, non-plus. But it is sweeping. So let's help folks understand what's actually going on over there and where we go from here. Mark Grant is Managing Director and Chief Global Strategist for B. Riley FBR. He joins us on the phone from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I'm sure it is steamy this time of year. So, Mark, (laughs) help us understand what you saw as you read into Christian Savings Plan here. Um, Basically, Deutsche Bank has given up on their global ambitions. Um, It's a uh, hit to the bank, in my opinion. they're not only cutting in equities, they're cutting in fixed income. They're cutting about 18,000 uh, jobs globally. The uh, First, it was uh, somewhat well-received in Europe, and then uh, in the United States, uh, they're down about 6%. The, uh, and, and before you go on, let, let me just ask you about that, because as you say, like initially people were like, okay, this seems like a, a decent plan, but it quickly has turned the other way. What do you make of that uh, kind of turn of opinion? I think a lot of institutions looked at this. One of the things that's not discussed much in the press, but that's certainly there and big, is their derivatives book. What's going to be very interesting to see now is uh, how much of their derivatives book book they put in their bad bank Mm. and uh there's a lot of concern about that but basically uh deutsche bank uh, is the biggest uh, bank in germany came to try to compete with the american banks and the british banks and uh the the bottom line is they didn't make it well so you know hey mark you know i do wonder if you know what is the role for Deutsche Bank going forward? Is there a role for Deutsche Bank going forward, or do they just need to kind of re? You know, is it just a case of really rethinking what kind of bank they need to be? Maybe much more of a domestic player uh, on their own homeland versus trying to be as global as the others. Can they survive with that kind of business strategy? Carol, I think uh, you've made a couple of very good points, and. Uh, Can they survive? Yes, but they'll survive in a much diminished state, both revenues, profits-wise. I think they're going to sink to become a uh, just a local bank, if you will, or maybe a regional bank, but certainly not a global bank like they have been. The other issue is that the ECB has been making noises about uh, having a new round of quantitative easing, and my suspicion is that what's happening with Deutsche Bank is going to fo- force them into it as uh, this is going to be a big problem for Germany. And so, Mark, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking with Joe Weisenthal about, you know, the images of people, you know, walking out of the offices across the world with boxes. You know, it, we can't help but be reminded of 2008 and Lehman, except that was a very different time and it was much more widespread. You have to think that there may be some other banks that either pick up business, pick up 
you know, bankers or, you know, other talent from this? Who stands to win, if anyone, here? Well, you're certainly right. There's going to be a lot of people on the street, 18,000 globally, that are going to be out looking for uh, uh, new positions. And I think a number of uh, firms, both uh, the global ones and some of the regionals, will try to pick up some of these people. There's certainly some very qualified people that are getting laid off. And um, I think it's uh, going to be an opportunity for some people banks in london and in new york and uh obviously it's a uh, dismal end if you will or to uh as i said deutsche bank's yeah. global ambitions yeah i mean it finished and they were they were high i mean i remember you know just yeah. you know 10 certainly 10 12 years ago and even more recently you know deutsche bank was making a big push here uh on wall street hiring big talent and and it just didn't it just didn't work right it just didn't work and uh they tried to go out and compete with, uh, as I said, the American and the British banks, or you could even throw in some couple of the French banks. Sure. It just didn't happen. Then, of course, their second largest bank in Germany, Commerce Bank, also is uh, troubled. They tried to arrange some kind of merger. That didn't work. And uh, as uh, Glenn Fry once says, the heat is on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, absolutely. Uh, and we're definitely st- seeing more heat put on uh, shares of Deutsche Bank. What do you want to see from, I don't know, what do you want to hear from Deutsche Bank? Just got one last question here, Mark, just a few seconds. What do you want to hear from Deutsche Bank over the next six months to say that maybe they're figuring out how to survive going forward? Well, you know, they're saying things like, you know, in 22, we may have uh, uh, share buybacks and stuff. I think that's stuff and nonsense. I think we've heard what we're going to hear from them, and now it's a question of evaluating them correctly and taking a very hard look at uh, what they are. And as I said, the biggest thing out there that none of us know at this point is uh, what they're going to do with their derivatives book, if they're yeah. putting it in their bad bank, part right. of it, all of it, what they're doing. And I think that's going to be a huge driver of uh, how people uh, assess Deutsche Bank into the future. It's a great point that, you know, what ultimately mm-hmm. ends up in that bad, that so-called bad bank is going to be key going forward. Mark Grant, Managing Director, Chief Global Strategist for B. Riley FBR. He joined us on the phone from Fort Lauderdale. There is power in So we mentioned that Amazon Prime Day, it is just around the corner. So too, it seems, is a strike by some Amazon warehouse workers. Let's get uh, an idea of what's going on here. Josh Idelson is labor reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from uh, San Francisco. So Josh, uh, Prime Day, 15th and 16th of July, right? That's when you can get a bunch of deals and it's a way to really kind of, you know, give some cool things to, I guess, Amazon Prime members, but also maybe pull in more members. Um, But at the same time, workers are fighting back. What specifically is going on? That's right. This is a striking escalation in labor activism at Amazon, a company where unions have had a hard time trying to get a foothold historically. We see plans for over 100 people to go on strike in Shakopee, Minnesota, at one of the company's warehouses there. This is a place that's become an epicenter, really, of labor activism in the U.S. for Amazon workers. There's an unusual effort backed by a couple unions and by a chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, who've together supported an advocacy group that has pulled off a series of protests among 
the workers at Minnesota's Twin Cities, where Amazon warehouses, where they say most of the workers are East African Muslim immigrants who have organized around issues including accommodations for Ramadan. Well, and what I find interesting about this, too, Josh, is that you're seeing some solidarity with some white-collar workers, some of whom are flying in to join in this. So this isn't just sort of a a rogue group of employees or or warehouse workers. This is something that that seems to be catching on a a little bit across the company. Why? That's right. The workers in Shakopee plan to rally for conversion of more temps to full-time Amazon employees and relaxation of the productivity quotas that they say make their work unsafe and insecure. But they'll also be rallying for action to address climate change, and they'll be joined by some software engineers from Amazon Employees for Climate Justice who are flying in from Seattle because they see a common cause, as one of them put it to me, We're both fighting for a livable future. And this is part of a trend of software engineers, service workers, warehouse workers, people who do very different jobs in the supply chains of these tech companies, trying to forge common cause and solidarity and take on these companies together. And it's coming at a moment when Amazon is under significant scrutiny. There's a tighter labor market that brings more attention to how they treat people, There is real political attention to this company, which is the company of the wealthiest person in the world and has become a target and has had a harder time staying under the radar in terms of how it treats the people whose work it relies on. You know, Josh, I do wonder, we have a guest on later on. Uh, It's an author. She's a history professor. Her name is Margaret O'Mara, and she's got a book out called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. And it looks into, you know, these big tech companies that have had such an impact, you know, and it's just a few, if you really think about it, a few really big tech companies that have really changed our world and looks at the relationship in Washington and maybe how that was allowed to happen. And I do wonder whether the environment in Washington really is as contentious um, as it seems to be in some of the headlines and certainly some of the stories that we all put out there or whether, you know, Washington is is still kind of tied very closely to Silicon Valley and might let them kind of have their way. And I just wonder how that might play into something like a strike by workers. Well, certainly these companies have tremendous influence in Washington, and they have connections and influence in both political parties. But we have also seen more of a trend in this 2020 presidential election cycle of people running for president choosing to directly call out some of these companies and to tie themselves to the causes of workers, at least rhetorically. And Amazon is a prime example in that Amazon made its commitment to pay workers at least $15 an hour after being targeted by politicians, including by Bernie Sanders' Stop Bezos Act. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. And I have to say, I mean, it's also evocative of, you know, what we've seen at Walmart, what we've seen yeah. over the years. You know, these companies get so uh, big and powerful. And it also is a statement, as Josh alludes to, 
of where we are in terms of income inequality yeah. uh, and what the bigger story there, and, right? You know, and we're going to talk about Silicon Valley and its effect later on in the show when we get into the book, The Code. Josh Idelson is labor reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from San Francisco. Really interesting story as we mm-hmm. get closer and closer to Prime Day. I'm giving you the warning. So he is looking back and crafting a warning for today, a warning for the U.S. and China. Let's get more on his weekly commentary. Andy Brown is back with us, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And I have to be quite honest with you, Andy, every time Jason and I read your column, we're like, everybody should read this to try and get a better understanding of what's going on behind the scenes when it comes to U.S. and China. Tell us about your look back here and how it pertains to today. Sure. So, so this is George Cannon, and he's a diplomat, a U.S. diplomat in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And he writes this long telegram, long because it was long, 8,000 words, to the State Department, which essentially sets out what Back becomes in... – this is 1946. Right. And it sets out what was to become U.S. strategy of containment against the Soviet Union. And when you read this telegram, it's the language that really strikes you. So this is 1946, Stalin's Russia. The Soviet Union wants to take down, wants to destroy the United States. It is implacably opposed to U.S. values, which are about to be embedded in the institutions that become the pillars of the so-called liberal global order. It wants to impose its ideology on the world. And George Kennan says, hold on, let's not panic. You know, let's not get hysterical. Let's believe in ourselves. Let's fix our problems. You know, let's have confidence in our own open values. And more than anything, let us present an an optimistic view about the kind of world we want to live in and work with our friends and partners to achieve that. And that is a strategy, I think, that the current U.S. leadership could learn from. Well, especially the notion of working with our friends and partners, because the U.S. seems to really be going it alone here. And we've talked with you before about this dramatic shift from multilateralism to bilateralism, right? Right, exactly. And, that, and, and, and that's absolutely key. But even before that, I think is an understanding that China is not the enemy, okay? That's the first thing. So mm-hmm. China does not want to bring the United States down. As a matter of fact, its economy is entwined, is enmeshed inextricably with the U.S. economy. It is not opposed to U.S. institutions and led institutions. In fact, it works with most of them, the U.N., the IMF, the World Bank, and so on. It's against the human rights regime, but it supports most U.S. government-led institutions around the world, and it has no ideology it wants to impose on the rest of the planet. And if it tried to, it would be rejected, because actually Chinese governance is pretty unattractive to most people in the world. Well, and that's interesting. It's kind of this concept of, we talk about, be you, like be be the United States, right, in terms of its morals, its ethics. Put that out there, and that should be enough. Right. And instead, what you're seeing actually is this building, and this is very dangerous, you're seeing this building 
anti-Chinese hysteria now. The students uh, we see in, in this particular. Country. Sure, that's an example, right? So deny, ex- deny visas to Chinese students, uh, all of this suspicion against Chinese scientists mm-hmm. uh, and researchers. Who are they really working for? You know, I mean, where are their loyalties? Um, and, the, and, and then at, at the extreme, you've got people in, this, in, in, in the military who are saying, look, a, a war is inevitable, right? And in fact, we may want to bring it forward before China gets even more str- richer and even more powerful. And then you're seeing it in the industrial domain with people calling for the destruction of Huawei and other you know, Chinese technology champions in order to try to stop China. And actually, the beginning of wisdom, which and, and, and Kennan understood this very well, is that the U.S. has very limited influence over China's mm. trajectory. It cannot stop the rise of China. It's right. going to happen, right? Well, let me ask you this, because on the one hand, obviously, there's a lot of vilifying. And yet, on the other hand, at the G20, there was a lot of, you know, rhetorical hugging and kissing between President Trump and, and President Xi. So help us understand what's going on there versus what we see in in terms of, uh, you know, all this manifestation of really China being an enemy. Well, I think that's the word. It's rhetorical. I mean, this is, as I, as I say in my column, this is concocted bonhomie. I mean, yeah. this is the two of them deciding that they're going to have to paper, paper over the cracks. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps we'll see. A, a, it, it, it's, it's hard to handicap what's going to happen yeah. here. I mean, Xi Jinping has got the 60th anniversary of the, the founding of the People's Republic coming up in October. Okay? He, 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 wants, he does not want to, sh- to, to, to look weak to his country ahead of that. On the other hand, Trump has got the election coming up in 2020, Mm -hmm. it may actually not be in his interest to do a deal before then and make it look like he's soft on China. So the the question is, you know, can they they maintain this truce? I mean, the the, the essential thing now is to avoid things spiraling out of control. At the same time, though, you write that expect to that China will show a friendlier face externally to try to split the U.S. from its friends and allies. I mean, China's on a mission. China, China is on a, on a China is on a mission. That's not an ally, or is it? I China mean, is definitely not an ally. Yeah, uh, and it, it it certainly intends to split, or it will try to split China's America's uh, America and its friends and and allies. I mean, what really needs to happen here is the U.S. and China need to get together and decide on a way in which they can coexist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the outlines of that broadly would be this. What are the areas that we can agree on? And unfortunately, the areas that the two sides agree on are now dwindling. Climate uh, was and ought to be a great area of mutual collaboration. And then, as Henry Kissinger said, Dr. Kissinger says, you've got to, you've got to draw these red lines, okay? And, and one of these red lines has got to be market access. You know, it, it, no, no offense, but, you know, our markets are open to you, uh, and including in technology. Right. And if you don't open your markets, well, we're going to stop you from coming to China. I mean, so it's not a question of capitulation, mm-hmm. but it is a question of trying to figure out how these two enormous, the world's two largest economies can coexist. And I think that's actually key, right? It's not necessarily that we're going to like each other or anything, but they have to survive together. Exactly. All right, so 30 seconds left. But then how does Russia fit into (laughs) all of this? Well, it's interesting now that you you really are seeing a great deal of collaboration between China uh, and, 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 and Russia. 
um, although to an extent that is also a manufactured friendship right. that between them there is there, there is a huge amount of distrust yeah it's amazing amazing well always thought-provoking andy brown your weekly visit with us we look forward to it editorial director for bloomberg new economy his column this morning a warning to the u.s and china from the past name checking george kennan as i said to you before we feels a little about- tom keen george kennan no but we all remember set the stage studying, i know you know right you're listening to bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio what is it? What if it's the Demogorgon? We're so screwed if it's the Demogorgon. It's not the Demogorgon. An army of troglodytes charge into the chamber. Troglodytes. Told you. <laughs> All right. So for those of you who didn't understand any of those words that just came out. Help, help. What Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. It is the subject of a really, really well-read and fun story via Bloomberg Business Week. Mary Pallon wrote it. She is a writer based here in New York City. She's on the phone. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel, I want to start with you because... This was born of your brain, I believe. I guess, but you know, Mary gets all the credit for it. But basically, we were uh, heading into July 4th a number of uh, weeks ago and said, you know, there's this hit show on Netflix, Stranger Things. Uh, it's kind of a thing. Uh, how, how, do we, how do we take a unique twist on it? And so we kind of batted it around a little bit. And by we, I mean me talking to myself. And I was like, Dungeons and Dragons. I want to know more about what that show has done for that game. And so we kind of put a call out to a certain someone named Mary. And Mary was like, I am so into this. (laughs) All right. So, Mary, pick up the baton there. Tell Tell us what you set out to do and what you found out. Sure. So there's something really fascinating going on with board games and RPGs or role-playing games, which is kind of ironic. There's been a huge renaissance in the last five or ten years, and D&D or Dungeons & Dragons fits squarely in that. The fifth edition of the game came out in 2014 and has had huge double-digit growth, and there's this huge influx of new players, but also people like me who played, you know, maybe in high school or college, but then are getting back into it. So it's kind of, you know, against this backdrop of nerd culture overall, you know, exploding. You've got Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Stranger Things, these shows that, you know, when I was in high school, D&D, you kind of like didn't tell people you played it. And now it's so <laughs> mainstream. So hence the demand for a professional dungeon master. And, and that's, I think, one of the most interesting things about this, though, is that something about Dungeons and Dragon or D&D, it, it also isn't easy to learn. Right. So you kind of need someone to hold your hand a little bit. And that was sort of, I think, what Mary really was able to, like, uh, find out more about in this reporting. So what, what did you learn, Mary? So there's a huge difference, too, in terms of how people you're absolutely right. I think that people see that rule book and they get really intimidated. It's One thick. of the genius things about the fifth edition of the game is it makes it, I think it lowers that barrier to entry and it can be as advanced as you want or as simple as you want. But the huge thing that's happening is the growth of esports and things like right. Twitch. So now you can watch people play the game before you even buy a rule book. You can get all this exposure to, you know, the various things that you can do with it. And you now have 
you know, some of these streams that are getting huge numbers of followings and you have professional voice actors and things showing what the game is really all about. Whereas, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, it was kind of word of mouth or you'd have to go to a game shop to get a sense of what the game was all about. So I think now people are kind of seeing these long infomercials, so to speak, of D&D that just quite simply wasn't possible when the game came out in the 70s. Well, and I find it so fascinating, too, that it's this collision of technology and nostalgia Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways. And that's clearly at the heart of Stranger Things, too. You know, here we have Netflix, you know, the ultimate sort of new content delivery system – and this is a show about 1985. Yeah, really. So, so I mean, the the Pepsi. I'm I'm on episode five right now. The Pepsi product <laughs> placement is so strong. Yeah. It's just like they and, and you know they, we, we've written Schwinn about this a bicycles. Lot. Totally. It's like all these brands that ha- now have this nostalgia play. That if if they don't lean into it, you know, Coke is right there, ready. Oh, ready yeah. to Windows One. Yep. Right. <laughs> totally. like, so wait. So, but what's interesting too, Mary, is you talk about these DMs, these dungeon masters. I mean, this has become a job opportunity for individuals. Yes. I interviewed some people who do this now full time. And at least one case, someone only does it online. Some people will do it in person. They'll go to your bachelor party, your kid's birthday party. Um, You know, if just some friends want someone to kind of run the game for them, because if you're really involved, Dungeon Master, you will spend a lot of time preparing the campaign um, so it's a variety of services and some people, you know, do it as a side hustle, but there's definitely demand, particularly in places like, you know, Seattle, New York, San Francisco, where there's just a high concentration of dorks with, um, disposable income. And some of them are so celebrities. Kind of- dorks with disposable yeah. income. Yeah. DDIs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, they, but these guys, these DMs are making, you talk about $300 they're getting for four hours, $500, mm-hmm, they'll come to mm-hmm. your office. Uh, and run a team activity, then there's actually a subscription-based model. I mean, it's pretty wild. So, Mary, here, it is really wild. here's the question that I want to know, though, is, like, based on your interviews with the people in this world, how big of an effect has Stranger Things had on their ecosystem? I think it's had a pretty significant effect. Um, but I think, again, you know, Stranger Things kind of comes against this wave of other nerd stories, too. And I, I give Wizards of the Coast, which is like a subsidiary of Hasbro, a lot of credit for making the game more accessible. Um, you know, the gaming industry has kind of a tortured relationship with women and, um, you know, the LGBT community. But the new volume of, you know, D&D has been really thoughtful about, you know, female characters and pronoun usage and, They've really tried to make it a lot more accepting than just a bunch of, you know, geeky boys in a suburban basement. Um, Well, according (laughs) to the folks that make the game, an estimated 40 million people are playing the game annually. So not to be uh, dismissed, that's for sure. Joel Weber, thank you so much. Editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. And Mary Palan, she's uh, a writer. She wrote this story for Bloomberg Businessweek. And you can find it on the Bloomberg and also at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Businessweek on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close. Brian Jacobson is multi-asset strategist with Wells Fargo Asset Management. Joining us on the phone from Menominee, Menominee, Menominee Falls. Let's get that right, Wisconsin. Uh, Brian, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. You are constructive but cautious when it comes to the market. That seems fair considering everything that's going on. What's constructive mean and what does cautious mean in this environment to you? Well, maybe it means I just can't make up my mind as to which direction I think things could go. Well, but, uh, join the uh, crowd, yeah. It, well, exactly, and that's just it. That's why I, I feel like I'm in good company, right? I think a lot of people are constructive but cautious. It's really a question of how do you express that then in your portfolios. And for us on the multi-asset solutions team, um, we recognize that there are myriad risks uh, both to the upside and to the downside. And so uh, for our, some of the advice that we're giving to our clients about how to uh, not try to time the cycle but try to ride through the cycle, it really has to deal more with making some changes, say, instead of between equities and bonds, it's like, what do you do within equities and what do you do within bonds? So it's really trying to keep that strategic allocation, you know, try to stay to that strategic allocation, but then making some of those uh, tilts within each one of the major asset classes. And so for us, um, it means that within equities, it's being a little bit more defensive, having, say, a long staples position relative to uh, the broader S&P 500 or focusing more on low volatility equities or slightly more uh, defensive, higher quality names. Uh, and on the bond side, it's really about um, trying to add, a, you know, invest with managers that can add alpha through bottom-up security selection. So trying to, you know, uh, ride through the cycle as opposed to timing it is really the advice that we're giving our clients. So, Brian, you mentioned a, a minute ago the myriad risks. As you rank them, what are the top two? Well, I think that the top two would have to deal with uh, number one is the Federal Reserve uh, making some sort of change in uh, in tone or in sentiment, because just as quickly as the Fed pivoted from being hawkish to being patient back in January. They can then pivot from being patient to being prepared to cut. They can go back to pivoting to being patient, if not being slightly hawkish again. And the market is going to uh, need to react to however uh, the, the tone of the Fed changes. So I think that would be one of the big risks is that the Fed's tone can change just given what we've seen as far as with the, uh, the, the uh, renewal of trade talks between the U.S in China, the resiliency of the U.S. economy. Uh, and, and then the second big risk, I think, would have to deal really with the trade talks is um, it has economic momentum slowed so much that even um, a positive resolution to the trade tiff between the U.S. and China isn't going to be enough to really offset some weakness that's already uh, kind of brewing underneath the surface. Now, we remain constructive on the economic outlook. Um, you know, the latest jobs report, I think, kind of vindicates that view. But as we know from May's number, uh, that vindicated view can uh, quickly be undermined as well with any given data release. So are you banking on a recession anytime soon? 
We're not. Uh, and in fact, some of the work that we've done and then also in conjunction with our friends over at Wells Fargo Investment Institute and over at Wells Fargo Securities, different parts of the broader organization, uh, you know, our, our various recession risk models still have us running at a fairly low risk of recession for the next 12 months. Uh, it's, you know, the historical average, if you were just to pick a random point on the timeline, there's about a 14 percent probability that that would be during a recessionary period. And right now, it may be it's something closer to about 16%, you know, so that's one six, uh, not six zero percent. So um, it, it's still fairly low risk. Uh, historically, the risks have more come from the Fed being almost blithely ignorant of the slowdown in the economic data and triggering a recession. And we think that there's an incredibly low risk of that happening today. And so from a political perspective, you know, you mentioned trade, but we're obviously on the eve of and maybe we're beyond the eve. Maybe we're right in the middle of the 2020 election cycle, to be honest, uh, especially given how many headlines we see, debates, etc. How much do you worry about political risk and can you model that in this day and age? Yeah, so I think we're actually like two years into the campaigning for the 2020 yeah. campaign, aren't we? Didn't it to really start uh, with the last election? Uh, and there are obviously political risks to be aware of if there's uh, any change in tax laws, change in regulations. But I think historically what we've learned is that it doesn't really pay to let politics influence your portfolio. Uh, and uh, some of that, I think, is just because of the resiliency of the U.S. economy. It has to deal also with the adaptability of of the businesses that you can invest in, uh, their ability to shift operations or profits to different jurisdictions, right? Uh, they, they can also navigate the regula- changes in the regulatory regime pretty easily. Uh, so w- political risks aren't oftentimes front and center, and nor should they really be for investors in most developed markets, where political risks, I think, become more important to model are really in emerging markets where you have uh, uh, maybe less stable uh, political regimes. I mean, let's take Turkey as, I think, a, a good case in point uh, right. as far as, uh, you know, the big shifts that you see there. Uh, you also have other areas like Argentina. Um, some some of the changes can be for the better, some can be for the worse, but political risks, for the most part, they're fun, they're wonderful to talk about, they're exciting to talk about, but ultimately it doesn't really affect our allocations. But I do wonder, in an environment where there's so much stuff going on around the globe, and when you look at the U.S. market, here you've got the S&P up almost 19% this year. I mean, does the U.S. compared to a lot of other opportunities, while maybe highly valued, still look like a place maybe that's a little bit safer than the rest of the world? Just got about 15 seconds here. I think you're right that the U.S. does typically have that safe haven view, but we actually prefer the value opportunities in Europe and even going like long the Japanese yen is more of a defensive place. So if you're looking for safe havens, you know, still consider the classic bonds and Japanese yen as uh, some of your safe haven plays. Good stuff. Brian Jacobson is multi-asset strategist at Wells Fargo Asset Management. He joined us on the phone from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.